Well, hey everyone! Welcome to episode ninety-four of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. Thanks for tuning in. This week's guest is art show circuit veteran Tim Chapman. Tim and I had a great conversation about how photography has changed over the years, his approach to seeing truth in photography, and his experiences on the art show circuit. Over on Patreon this week. We talked about his amazing collection of Nikon cameras that have been to space through various NASA programs. It was a really intriguing history lesson for me,、um, and I think you guys will really like it. So check it out. Well, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about this week's sponsors for the podcast. First, let me tell you about Arc Panel. Every photographer processes images, be it a light touch to ensure the image matches reality, or a heavy artistic post-processing style, or somewhere in between.、Um, I personally processed a lot using luminosity masks. There's a lot of different ways you can do luminosity masks. I like to use a panel that、uh, really speeds the process up. So let me in- introduce you to Arc Panel. Arc Panel was created by one of the podcast listeners and Patreon supporters, Anton Everine. Anton is a software en- developer and a landscape photographer, just like us. Arc Panel focuses on simplicity and speed. I tried it myself, and I found Arc Panel to be the fastest and most intuitive panel out there. Arc Panel provides 16-bit luminosity and saturation masks for lights, darks, midtones, and zones. With options to refine and apply them to any kind of adjustment layer, there is also a free extra tab with frequency separation, Orton effect, and dodge burn. Arc Panel has a free trial, so you can try it before buying, and Patreon supporters of the podcast get a special discount. Also, we are giving away three free copies of on Patreon, so check that out. You can try it for free at arcpanel. Averine dot photo. That's A R C P A N E L dot A V E R I N dot photo. The website has full features descriptions and a growing list of tutorials. Lastly, I wanted to take time to thank our Patreon supporters and podcast producers. These are generous individuals who are dedicating twenty dollars a month or fifty dollars a month over on our Patreon page. There's lots of benefits for joining and supporting the podcast at those levels, so check it out. Thank you so much to Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Jason Matias, Anton Everine, Laurie Berenson, David Kingham, and William Nurse. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy the show. Welcome,、uh, Tim Chapman with two M's, which is pretty cool.、Uh, welcome to F Stop Collaborate and Listen. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hey, you know it is a Friday afternoon, and I can't complain. And it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood here in Arizona. The sun is out, as always. <laughs> yeah, the sun actually just came out 
Uh, today is it's been snowing off and on for like the last two weeks, um, and there's like, gosh, I want to say there's like two feet of snow outside, but it's all melting, so it's like slushy and nasty. But uh, uh, that's that's one thing I miss being down here. I've lived in Arizona for the last fourteen years, but moved from Canada, so oh wow, I, st- I haven't touched a snow shovel in uh, almost a, a decade and a half. Right, I, I guess you guys don't get a whole lot of snow down there in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> no, we watch it on television. <laughs> yeah. So do you ever do you ever find yourself missing uh, playing in the snow or doing stuff in the snow? You know, it's funny, but the last five years, uh, right around this time, either January or February, I've uh, left for the Arctic and uh, areas up there to uh, to photograph uh, because I I need to get my fill of cold. I really like cold weather. But you know, happy wife, happy life. Right. Here. <laughs> yes, I completely understand what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I was I would say something snarky, but my wife is. It's actually probably in. best not to. Yes. Because there's exactly. an archive of this, <laughs> <laughs> and it will right. come back and haunt you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that, that's probably um, just let's stay off limits on that topic. Okay. <laughs> well, so gosh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, I know that uh, you, your background is actually as a film photographer um, and you've been taking photos for like 40 years. So like, man, like tell me how has photography changed since you started? Oh my God. It, uh, you know, exponentially. It's uh, it's astonishing because, you know, just the other day I was going back through some of my old uh, film archives because I'm one of these guys that actually has binders and binders of virtually every negative or positive that I've ever shot uh, since 1982. Uh, yeah. Scary in and of itself. But uh, I was going back uh, through some of those uh, because there's a new uh, an old vintage body of work that I want to do for my uh, website. Uh, so I was digging back through some uh, shots that I did in the uh, in the mid '80s, and um, you know that was that was old school. That was in the dark room, developing with tanks, you know, and using a light bulb as your light source for uh, you know for actually exposing your paper, developing <laughs> your paper in trays, and watching the magic come alive as chemistry flows back and forth over top of a white paper and turns it into an image. (laughs) Spectacular. Those days were magic. And then, you know, I get into, uh, uh, I was really lucky in high school in grade 11 and 12, we had a color lab. Mm. You want to talk about uh, difficulty, try printing (laughs) color prints, you know, four different filters, four different exposures, one for each one of the colors and then trade development and that. Uh, that was, uh, <laughs> so needless to say, I don't really miss those days a whole lot. There was, yeah. there was the magic, you know, of looking in the trays and actually seeing the image develop. That was, that was you know, spectacular and it still is to this day. Um, however, uh, doing things like color printing back in the old days with those multiple filtration systems, it was so difficult to get anything that was consistent and mm-hmm. reliable. You could make one great print, but good luck trying to make another print. 
you know, <laughs> it, it made me understand why Ansel Adams was like the king of black and white photography. Right. Because, you know, color is just, it's so, so ridiculously difficult to do. But um, yeah, so you know, it that, seems to me like uh, making reproductions uh, of your photos was almost impossible in terms of consistency and things like that. Which is, um, gosh, it seems like that would make it all. That would that almost seems like that would make the value of each print that much higher. It was, but you know, in this day and age, it's really hard to get anyone to pay for that value, pay for that mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the tolerances were so low back then one degree of temperature, uh, variance in your chemistry would shift your colors wow. and imagine being in a high school lab and trying <laughs> right. to maintain, you know, temperature tolerances of one degree, like good luck. Right. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, I was never a fan of the dark room because of all of that. Mm-hmm. I really, um, I really loved capturing the images, the, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, the technical aspect, the creative deployment of settings and how I wanted an image to look and seeing really learning the art of seeing. So, you know, as, uh, technology moved along and, uh, you got into digital, well, your learning curve, is so much drastically reduced because the cost of getting an image is significantly less. You know, you can, you can just get into that spray and pray mentality that we've all heard of where you just shoot, 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 shoot. And hopefully you're going to hit the uh, target at one point in time and get one nice shot out of it. (laughs) Um, Because I come from a film background, I've never really had that type of approach I've always looked at each image as having really inherent value, really significant value, not just because it costs you more per image or you only have 36 potential images in your camera on a roll of film. Um, It's more that um, an image, because I've been shooting for so long, uh, it deserves care and feeding. It deserves being thought of thoughtfully, you know, And when you look through the viewfinder and you're making your composition, I pay inordinate amount of attention to distractions. Mm -hmm. What besides my uh, main focal point uh, is in the image that I don't want there. Mm -hmm. And then I have to react to it. I either have to wait for it to go, you know, if it's a car passing through or it's a bird flying through or sitting there or something like that, or... I got to move. I got to change my composition to get rid of those power lines. Do it the old fashioned way, you know, move your body as opposed to, you know, how it's done today. And so how, how has that, uh, how has that approach translated, um, into your, um, way of shooting now that we're doing digital? Like, are you still using the same approaches? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's how I'm wired. Right. So when I look at the digital darkroom, you know, just going back to the day when uh, I was in a chemistry darkroom, uh, I didn't really like being there. Like I say, I like the magic of it. It's just that the tolerances and the inability to reproduce things very easily, that kind of stung me bad enough that uh, I didn't really like 
time spent in the darkroom. So I spent more time trying to get my image as close to being right on the film so that when the shutter closed, my work in essence was done as far as capturing the image goes, mm-hmm. as opposed to in this day and age where that's almost where the work starts. Is that for some, the, for some people? That's true. That. That's true. But um, with the digital darkroom, obviously you can do things like removing distractions and all that quite easily. But I find uh, if I get into that type of thinking, it's making me lazy in my Mm -hmm. view in capturing the image in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look back at, uh, I shoot primarily transparency film these days. uh, So positive slides. And um, there's so little tolerance in most films it's only about four and a half to five stops worth of dynamic range that you're going to get out of that film's ability to record detail. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when you're looking at an image through the viewfinder and you're composing, I pay an inordinate amount of attention to the light that's falling on my subject. Mm -hmm. And I have to know that I have only four and a half to five stops to work with. So I still take that same type of approach when I'm shooting with a digital camera. I'm really paying attention to the light and I want to balance it because I don't want to have to use software to try to brighten up shadows or keep detail in areas that I would. It's, it's great that those tools are available. It's just not how I'm personally wired. You know, I've always really studied the scenes very carefully and make sure I don't have any distractions or anything like that. It's, so how, uh, sometimes your, cost images. Yeah, I was gonna say like what um I was gonna say I you know I have a pretty good camera sensor, the A7R2, and you know, tons of dynamic range, but I've still found scenes where like you know highlights are blown or shadows are blown and they're just not recoverable. And um mm-hmm. how do, how do you handle that when you're shooting film? Well, basically the way I look at it is uh the highlights and the shadows are my children. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to have to make those choices. You're going to have to <laughs> sacrifice for the kids. So really, <laughs> looking at the uh, the scene, you know, I'm looking at where the shadows are. I'm looking at the density of those shadows. I'm looking at the highlights. And I'm deciding what is most important in this particular composition that I retain as much of the detail in the highlights and let the shadows suffer. Mm -hmm. Or I really need to bring the shadows back. Mm -hmm. So, or is it a case that I need fill light? Uh, So I'm going to use an off-camera flash or something like that. Am I going to use a reflector to try to add some light in to balance the light out a little bit more? Is it a neutral density graduation filter that I need to try to balance the light that way? Mm -hmm. There's a whole variety of different ways to try to achieve the end game. But uh, more often than not, when a lot of people look at my images, you're going to see black blacks with no detail. I kind of like that. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know. Because like that's, I don't know, that doesn't necessarily bother me is black, black shadows. I'm like, well, shadows a lot of times are black, you know, like that's oftentimes when it's, especially if it's, you know, dusk or, you know, twilight or pre-dawn you know, the shadows are going to be black. Far too often though, I'm seeing these days is that because the sensors catch her so much, 
and that software through high dynamic range uh, can bring back so much. The, when people don't let them go naturally to black and it becomes more dynamic range than our eye is used to seeing, um, that's when you get that kind of comic effect when you're looking at it. For you're sure. looking at the image and it just, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look natural. Right. And, and me, that, that really bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I've been talking a lot with people about that um, recently, like, cause, cause I have the same problem when I'm, I'm my own work aside, like that's a whole other topic that I, that I'm painfully aware that a lot of my work doesn't look real, but I'm trying as hard as I can nowadays to do that. But, um, I look at a lot of work nowadays from really, you know, fantastic landscape photographers that are high quality, great photographers, but, I have the same issue when I'm looking at a lot of people's work. I'm like, there's just something about this that just doesn't look real, you know? Like it looks too, mm-hmm. too, too good, you know? <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I've been very fortunate because over four decades and a lot of, you know, probably a good three decades has been concentrating on landscape photography. I've been to many places. I've seen many things in all different kinds of light. right. And I can tell pretty quickly when something just doesn't look right. (laughs) But, you know, that's not discounting that at all. You know, everyone should put their own creative stamp on it. Um, It's just, you know, what we learn to like and how we wire ourselves. Right. I I agree. I mean, there's nothing wrong with either approach. It's just like for me personally, I, when I look at other, and again, I'm not like, (laughs) I'm not the, person that's I'm not their audience right I'm another photographer but as a fellow photographer when I look at other people's work I tend to gravitate to liking images that have more of a natural feel to them yeah yeah I see fantastic things done with composites and all that kind of stuff these days yeah Uh, great to look at zero interest in trying to do it yeah just because it's not something I would ever see you know, right. but, uh, doing the, uh, I do the art show circuit all across the country. And, uh, so I see a lot of other photographers work all the time mm-hmm. and, uh, it's amazing all the creative doors that have been opened through, you know, advances in technology as far as the hardware goes or the software. Um, so it's amazing what people are able to create these days in their images, mm-hmm. as opposed to guys like me that are just kind of stuck with whatever the world's giving me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things you said in your email was um, that you believe uh, you believe that film is truth. Um, is that kind of kind of what you're talking about, that it's it's a more pure representation of of what we're able to see ourselves or is there something more to that? Well, to give you a bit of background in that, um, I took uh, photography in my junior high and my high school. So basically I had photography every year between grades eight through 12, which is pretty astonishing in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Um, But my uh, instructor that I had in grade 10 um, always wanted to see truth in the images. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to see all your bracketed exposures so that he could see if you have changed the scene at all by moving anything around. 
you know, that, uh, oh, that shouldn't have belonged there. So, or this cleans up the composition if I remove this, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so we were physically doing it, or there were kids in the class. All right. On occasion, I would do it where there was stuff in the shot that hurt the composition. And I physically went and removed it before I took the second shot. And uh, we weren't supposed to do that <laughs> because basically he came from a journalistic background. Sure. So in journalism, truth is everything in the image. Right. Granted, we have gotten so far away from that in today, today's media. <laughs> but journalism back then, the whole idea was that it, you're there to record a scene and kind of like as a witness. Right. So therefore, you're not supposed to manipulate the scene at all. Uh -huh. So therefore, uh, when we were shooting in positives, uh, slides again, um, your exposure had to be right on. Otherwise, you were going to blow your shadows or your highlights. Uh, and sometimes there's no way you could even recover that no matter how good you were in the darkroom. Um, but by looking at the bracketed exposures, you always made sure that you were preserving the truth in the scene. Mm. And, uh, so I've always gone forward to that. So again, when I'm looking in uh, the viewfinder composing my images these days, if there's a power line in the shot, that power line is going to be in the shot unless I do something. Mm -hmm. before I take the photograph, which means like changing my composition or, or changing my position or changing the lens so that I'm zooming past that or, or whatever. I've got to do something. That's my approach. Mm -hmm. I want to do it before I'm pressing the shutter down because I want to retain the truth. I want to be able to look back at my film and say, yes, this is exactly what the scene looked like. So that is always carried forward for me. And uh, I always try to make sure that I'm always preserving, quote unquote, the truth mm -hmm. in my images. Yeah, I'm curious how, since you do the art, the art show scene and the, you know, showing your work at all of these art fairs and whatnot, um, since the advent of digital photography and all of the powerful things you can do artistically and creatively, um, in the digital age, have you seen uh, a change in terms of what people are asking you or uh, purchasing from you at the shows? Like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, do people come up to you and be like, is that Photoshopped? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the images uh, um, that I take are different uh they're not the usual kind of run-of-the-mill photographing the iconic locations from the iconic spots mm -hmm. um that's the stuff that uh people are used to seeing uh instead i've been trying to set myself apart on the show circuit and photographing things uh different places um like deserted towns in namibia and southwest africa going to the largest cave in the world in Vietnam, uh, photographing icebergs from, uh, from a boat or from a kayak, um, that kind of stuff. So the places that I'm seeing, people probably haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. And some of these landscapes are so spectacular that because you have nothing, no baseline to compare it to, I get that question all the time. Mm -hmm. 
oh, that was Photoshopped in, or they changed this, or they did that, that type of thing. And, you know, those aren't my customers. So I don't engage with that type of uh, conversation. <laughs> but, you know, if, um, uh, if I took the other hand and I'm photographing uh, a familiar spot at Grand Canyon and there's a unicorn off to the side and there's like 12 lightning bolts, all that type of thing, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so that, th- because people have got that baseline. They know that the, they've been there and, oh my God, the chances of seeing that are like probably less than zero. <laughs> chances are sometimes it's going to happen, but it's going to have to come by way of doing composites or something like right. that to actually make the image work. So it's, a, it's interesting when I, because when you do shows, uh, as many shows as I do, you're going to have people come in the booth and quite often you're going to get the couple. Right. <laughs> and one part of the couple is going to say, oh my God, was that, uh, that thing is so spectacular, blah, blah, blah. And then you have the other one, the learned one, <laughs> who says, oh yeah, he did that in Photoshop or yeah, he did this by uh, adding that and you know, he took this thing out and blah, blah, blah. You know, the learned one. They're always, uh, they're always fun to listen to. <laughs> Sometimes I'll interject and correct, but most times I'll just sit back and murmur. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, one of the things you said that I guess kind of uh, surprises me and or I'd like to hear more about um, in terms of how you've seen it translate into sales. I know that a lot of people say that kind of the more iconic locations that a lot of people have been to before tend to be better sellers at these types of um art fairs and and whatnot. But uh, I, like you said, you don't have a ton of that stuff. So how have you, because I guess I find myself somewhat in the same boat, like most of the stuff that I shoot is not stuff that most people have seen before or been to before, like shooting sunrise from the top of a 14,000 foot mountain that requires like technical climbing to get to the top of. And not a lot of people have done that or seen that kind of scene before so like it's i've always found that it's hard to for people that have never been to a place like that before to really appreciate what it is so like have you found that uh, to be a challenge when you're talking to customers or trying to sell those types of pieces to folks well you know there's a couple of different ways to look at it uh yes the guys are absolutely correct that when you go to an art show uh if people are looking for wall art they often want to be able to connect with that all uh, with that work. So the connect might be that uh, they've been to the place before, which is nine times out of ten, uh, or it just speaks to them somehow. Uh, making that connection is so much easier when you go to iconic locations or popular tourist destinations, right. and you're making those type of images. But because those are very popular, and because those sell well. You go to an art show, and if it's got 10, 15 photographers in it, guess what probably 80% of those photographers are going to have? They're going to have their iconic picture of Horseshoe Bend, Mesa Arch. You know, all of the all of the icons are going to be there. Um, so if you get in that boat, then your image will win if it's priced lower than the rest because now it's almost looked at as commodity Mm. or it is, it's got the lightning bolts and the unicorns and it's just, it's so over the top 
compared to the other ones and you found that market for it. It's really difficult to sell other stuff that's not iconic and do that where you can make a living of it. I've been very fortunate that I do make a living of doing this, but I'm photographing icebergs and I live in Arizona and I'm selling icebergs to people that have tried to escape cold weather. And I'm trying to sell these at art shows in Arizona. That makes sense though. <laughs> that's an enormous risk. It makes sense, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously um, one of the most powerful aspects of landscape photography is that it can transport you uh, mentally and emotionally to places and feelings. Um, so, so that makes sense that if you live in a very hot climate, that a, a picture of an iceberg might appeal to you. <laughs> it, it might. However, when you're going to the show and you have uh, 10,000 people come in your booth that are actually interested in looking at stuff, uh, probably 9,000, 500 of them are looking for shots of the Southwest. So, and it's the other 500 that uh, I have to try to say, Hey, you want to buy an iceberg? (laughs) (laughs) Or, Hey, how about the shot of inside a a cave way over in Vietnam? Yeah, that's tough. uh, So like, how do you, how do you do that? Like what it, cause it seems like, I don't know, like if I was, which again, I'm probably not the, the right person to ask in terms of being a buyer. But if I was out trying to find stuff, I would be trying to find the most unique, interesting, uh, evocative work, not the most like iconic recognizable places. Like every, I don't know, every time I go into like a, a, you know, a business office or a medical office and I see a picture of Mesa arch or some other, you know, iconic location, I just kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's special. You know, like it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it almost turns me off. But, I know exactly what you yeah. mean. I know exactly what you mean, but it comes down to broad appeal. Right. You know, especially in an office environment, they want to have something that is neutral, that's not going to offend anybody, uh, that is going to have some kind of broad neutral appeal that a lot of people will look at it and say, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and I would rather have stuff that, uh, the way I refer to my work is that, um, it's either going to stir your soul or it's going to stir your mind or it might do both. Mm. But either way, when you look at my images, I'm trying to capture images that are going to grab you, hold on to you, maybe give your eye a little bit of a workout as it looks all around the image. And at the end of the day, it's probably going to be somewhat memorable. I've had uh, people that have come back to the show and bought an image, you know, like four years later because they just, they couldn't get it out of their head. Hmm. They had to have it. They didn't know why, but they just had to have it. So um, I've been fortunate that uh, like I've been doing the show circuit since 2007, yeah. but I've had, uh, I've, I've gained quite a, uh, a following of uh, collectors that uh, are, no matter what I throw at them, they, it captivates them. It grabs their attention and they want to have it because, you know, I, like I said, I've done the caves, I've done the icebergs, I've done deserts. I, I've been to Chernobyl and photographed radioactive bumper cars. Yeah. I saw that. You know, shot. So, That's really sweet. So I have quite a breadth of different types of imagery, but they're all going to grab your attention. Yeah. So will they appeal to everybody with a one to actually have a large one on their wall? Probably not. Uh-huh. 
but I'm not selling to everybody. I'm selling to the right people. Right. That's the way I approach it. So, so I'm curious, Works for me. I'm curious too, like, um, having been doing the art shows for since, well, I guess for about a decade now has, how does that compare and or complement um, and vice versa your, uh, sales on your website like do they kind of complement each other or do you find that they're two very different buyers or how does that work for you well selling uh fine art photography on a website is uh is always been a challenge you know it's not uh it's not like amazon where you're <laughs> selling something again that has got broad appeal and they're just gonna buy you know like a hundred purchases a day uh it's just it's not like that so what my website really serves is like a portfolio um, so that when I'm at an art show, I've only got so much wall space. Um, so I'm usually showing just my latest work or, you know, some of the best sellers mm -hmm. that are on those walls. But people really get enamored by a particular type of shots like the Chernobyl shots or, you know, uh, the Arctic um, or, you know, the Patagonia or something like that. So they, since I can only show so many shots at the show, it acts as a portfolio for them to go home and study and blah, blah, blah later on and eventually make a purchase. So it's hard to draw straight line connections mm -hmm. to those buyers. I, I don't look at them as two separate groups. I don't, I'd say that the, the majority of my buyers off my website are because they've seen my work at art shows. I see. They're not, yeah, they're not organically grown in the internet land, uh, just magically searching through Google. Oh, I want to buy a photograph of this. And they're going to try to track you down that way. Good luck. <laughs> There's a lot of images out there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Some people can do that. I haven't figured out how to crack that code. Right. But I do a lot of, uh, office installations as well and uh interior designers and office managers and all that find my work by going to an art show so they see what i'm capable of they see what my finishes are uh they go online they look at the portfolio a little bit and then they contact me and then i can reach into my archive and i can pull out even more images that look after the need that they're looking for mm -hmm. so that's what works best for me and when you're when you're selling at art shows, like what kind of mediums have you found are the most successful? Because um, it seems to me like you have some inherent challenges that come with doing an art show. Like you need stuff that's maybe not necessarily bulky or heavy, but also still looks good. And I've always I've heard people kind of vacillate between you know die sub metal and canvas but I'm seeing a lot more people do acrylic as well, but that obviously could also demand a higher price point. So kind of what is your approach to that? Well, you know, I've, uh, I've got a, three different options kind of that I work with currently. Um, I've got traditional photographic prints, which would be like Fuji crystal archive, just lower end. Um, Cause not everybody can enter into the art buying market at the top. Um, so I've got that. And then I have uh, Kodak Endura products. So that's more of the metallic type of paper. Mm -hmm. So a higher quality grade of paper. And then um, I used to do uh, canvas, but now I do the dye sub aluminums. Mm -hmm. 
and um, can do them either in uh, the high gloss finish or or the matte finish. Mm-hmm. I've stayed away from acrylics. Um, acrylics, obviously, the price point is one thing, but the uh, big thing that uh, concerns me with acrylics is uh, a scratch. The uh, the surface of acrylics I have found scratch really easily, and are not intended for the type of handling that is required of doing an art show. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're <laughs> unpacking and packing, unpacking and packing, unpacking and packing, you're going to damage the work very easily. So uh, you don't want to, I, I want to try to stay away from uh, work that's too fragile, no matter how spectacular it might look. Uh, it's, it's really hard for me to take that to an art show, knowing how it's going to be handled, no matter how nicely I try to handle it. It's not going to work. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> not like, for how, me. How do you, how do you package your, like, how do you get ready for a trip to for one of these things? Like, like, how do you know, how do you make it to where you get all your prints and they're, you know, that they're not going to get damaged in, in transit and things like that? Like, what's your approach to that? Well, um, there's a, a double bubble uh, foil insulation uh, that uh, would be basically used to wrap around hot water heaters uh, that I buy in bulk. And then I use that type of material to cut and make very large envelopes. And uh, I go to uh, Uline to buy my bags. So I buy very, very thick plastic uh, I can't remember the millimeter, but uh, very thick plastic bags that each piece goes into one of those bags, and then it goes into one of these double bubble uh, protected envelopes. Uh, wow. So basically, there winds up being four layers of bubble before you actually get to the piece, uh-huh. and uh, each piece is backed individually like that, and then all stacked in my van. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How how long does it take you to set up and and tear down? I do a, uh, a 10 by 20 uh, space, which basically would be looked at on the show circuit as a double space. Hmm. Uh, so that takes me probably about seven, maybe seven hours without lights and uh, probably eight hours with lights. So wow. <laughs> it's, quite, it, it's quite glamorous, I got to tell you. Yeah. What are some of the other challenges of doing art shows that, um, and I'm, I'm assuming it maybe has changed over time. So like, Talk to us about, you know, what is it really like to do these? Well, uh, like I said, I've been doing it for about 12 years and I've seen lots of other photographers come and go. Um, there are many that are hobbyists that say, oh, hey, I've gone to an art show. There's another guy. He's selling photography. I've got photography. I should try and do an art show. <laughs> well, number one, um, you have to be your, your biggest critic. Uh, people are generally not going to buy stuff that isn't of a certain level of quality. So you really have to be very critical about your quality. And second of all, no matter how good your stuff is, you got to know how to sell it. (laughs) And you also have to treat it as a business because I see so many people out there that either a give their work away or really don't have a true understanding of what their expenses are. And they wind up just, they want to make their booth look the best. So they spend all the big money and getting all the right equipment set up. 
all the most expensive pieces, you know, acrylics up to yin yang. And they learned pretty quickly that, uh, you know, those big ticket items are kind of hard to, hard to sell. You got to be at the right show with the right market. You got to know how to sell it. Um, so I've seen people that, uh, you know, come in, they'll go hard at it for about a year, a year and a half, and then you never see them again. Hmm. And then I've seen other people like myself that have been doing it for decades. And, but, you know, they do the first and foremost thing. They treat it as a business and mm-hmm. they make those hard decisions about which shows they do and what shows they don't do, how many shows they do, you know, controlling all their back expenses. Like, uh, you're doing two shows and one's in Texas and one's in, uh, Louisiana. Well, you got all the travel there. You have your accommodation for the, not just when you're at the show, but the days between the shows, you know, uh, there's your gas, all the food, all, all the booth fee, all of that stuff. When you really add up all of that and then put a dollar figure next to your time, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be moving quote unquote, uh, product. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're not going to last too long. Mm-hmm. So people really have to um, take that critical thought. How big of a jump do I want to make? And uh, it's probably best to go in early with uh, not the most expensive booth right off the bat. Really concentrating on the quality of your work, trying some smaller shows around home, seeing how well those go. See if you can handle the grind of setup, tear down. What, uh, twiddling your thumbs while people are coming and looking and showing you their dogs, touching all their stuff with their uh, 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 popcorn encrusted hands, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, getting stuff all over your pieces. You know, I've got lipstick marks on one of my print bins that I haven't been able to get the lipstick off or whatever. Someone must have dumped their purse in it at some point in time. And, oh, the stories I could tell you, man, it would fill up day's worth of a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes, you know, I've met some fantastic people on the road and sometimes you can absolutely kill it with a great show. And then the next show, it's funny. um, About five years ago, I had my highest show ever by twice what the second highest show was at the time. And the very next weekend, because the show was so far away from the house, I thought, well, I'll, I'll throw another show on the following weekend to try to amortize the distance that I was traveling and all that. The second show right after that was the second worst show I have ever done. Huh. So I went from being the best by twice as much to the very next weekend with basically the exact same stuff in the booth to the second worst show I've ever done. Wow. It, it's that type of, uh, it's that type of lifestyle. So it's, uh, it's not as glamorous as a lot of people think it is when they first come into the show booth. No, I, I think it sounds awful personally, but, (laughs) uh, I can understand, um, like if you're gonna sell your work, that's probably one of the best ways to do it without having a huge like recurring overhead, like you don't have your own gallery space or 
things like that. Yeah, but, that's a huge man. challenge. Is uh, when I see people go that route, I, I, man, I, I just can't see how they can do that. Bricks and mortar are so expensive. Yeah, it's 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 pretty insane for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and one guy I know, he's uh, he's got a gallery in uh, La Jolla, California, uh, which, you know, is pretty expensive uh, retail space out there. And uh, he's got three other top-name photographers that have galleries within a block of him. And uh, he's still doing the show circuit uh, in addition to that. So... It's, He's he's got to be uh, he's got to be feeling the pinch. That is uh, that's just a really difficult market to get into, and especially with so much direct competition. Yeah, that sounds that just sounds like an insane grind to me. Yeah, but well, I tell you, I, I I'd like to uh, pull back the reins on the amount of traveling that I do, uh, but because you know I don't want to sacrifice the variety of what I'm shooting. Uh, because it doesn't have broad appeal, I have to go to my market. My markets, I haven't quite figured out how to train them to come to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm working on it. How, how have you seen um, the impact of like all of these, I don't know, there's like art.com and like Fine Art America and all these kinds of, and like, you know, furniture stores that are selling photos for pretty cheap, like, have you seen the oversupply and, you know, sub-quality manufactured work? Have you seen the impact of that have an impact on um, what, you, what you're doing in the art circuit? Well, you know, it obviously has an enormous impact because people are going to look at that stuff and they look at it as, oh, A, it's a picture of the Southwest. B, it's like 40 by 60. And American Fine Furniture, or whoever they are, is charging like 79 bucks for it. Right. You know, how come your 40 by 60 is so much more expensive? Mm-hmm. You know, so I fortunately, I've kind of insulated myself from that because the content of my images are so different because they don't have broad appeal. They're not going to be in those stores. Right. See what I'm saying? But, you know, generic shots of the Southwest, because it's so spectacular, it's been photographed up the wazoo. It's really hard to get, you know, fresh images out of that uh, because it, it's been so overshot and overpopulated. But those stores are still going to tend to lean towards the iconic locations. Mm-hmm. So if you're shooting from the tripod holes of others, um, then you're competing with that directly. But if you're going deeper into the backcountry or like yourself, climbing a 14er and shooting it at sunrise, those aren't the type of shots that they're going to have. So those are going to keep an inherent value much higher than that. And if you've got someone coming in and saying, hey, that 40 by 60 at that shop down there is 79 bucks, that's not your customer. Right. You don't, you don't even want to try to entertain that type of customer. Do you spend any amount of time when you go to these art shows um, looking at other people's work and their pricing? And does that impact how you think about your own pricing? You know, I have zero interest in that. Uh Really, you know, um, 
there's a lot of people that do that. And I guess as you're first starting out, you kind of want to have some kind of baseline barometer type of thing. But at the end of the day, I'm not selling the same thing that they are. Right, right, right. um, What you do at a lot of art shows, um, a lot of people don't get this, is that you're selling yourself. You know, and that's why a lot of people find it hard to actually sell it because, you know, an image doesn't generally sell itself. You have to sell yourself. Mm -hmm. And then they take the image as part of you. So I'm selling my experiences, what I did to get this particular shot, you know, how you, how different it is. My shots from Chernobyl, it's just such a place that's so foreign to people. Yeah. Um, you know, so sharing those type of experiences and most of the images, because they've taken so much care in capturing them, that, uh, they do have a pretty significant story to them. So people want to connect with the piece and connecting with the artist and connecting with the piece is the way that I, I take the approach. So if you're interested in, uh, your shot of Mesa Arch, which you think is great, and there's like four or five other booths at the show that all their photographers have got a pretty nice shot of Mesa Arch as well, then perhaps it's in your interest to go and have a look to see what they're charging for theirs. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to have the type of customer that comes in and says, oh, I saw that just down uh, the way there. He's got his for X amount. And you get into you know a price war. Mm-hmm. And I've got like zero interest in that. And, you know, people have got their own stories, so I'm not going to learn anything from going there and hearing those other people's stories, talking about their work. So I I don't really see any kind of need to go around and look at others. And uh, I occasionally do for inspiration, but, or should I say I used to, but what I find is that even though I'm trying not to, when I look at other photographers' work, it's really difficult, especially when you've seen something that's quite spectacular, um, to not be inspired by it. And that goes and gets stored away in your subconscious. And then if I find myself in a similar area, I don't want that subconscious to open that box back up and say, well, you remember what you liked about that shot? And then you start putting little pieces together that make you almost work towards replicating what that other person did. Mm -hmm. And I have zero interest in that, but that's something you got to fight at times. It is. Especially when you've seen that such a spectacular image, you know, it's a, it's a tribute to that other photographer that has inspired you so much to say, Oh my God, that was so good. I've got to try to get something like it, but not it. If you know what I mean. I totally know what you mean. I've, I think I think a lot. I think we all have kind of struggled with that, especially as we start out as photographers. And I think eventually, most people kind of, at least most people I've talked to that have been in it for for more than five or six years, you know, you you start purposely not looking at other people's work a lot, so that you can try to have your your own unique vision that sets you sets you apart. Yeah. You know, the way I look at it now is that I, I look at someone's work generally. I don't look at it specifically for details or anything like that. I look at it as 
oh wow that uh, area looks quite quite dramatic i could have fun with that i could go mm-hmm. at a certain time of year and then i'm starting to formulate images in my head i do a lot of visualization and i start to figure out oh well that has lots of great potential for this mm-hmm. so i'm looking at their image generally to give me the inspiration to go to the location because there's lots of potential great compositions there. Right. That's the way that we kind of uh, take it now. Yeah. Uh, but, but you hit the nail on the head. A lot of people, and there's nothing wrong with it, especially when you're learning photography, that you look for that inspiration. You're learning how to see. Yeah, exactly. And they're great models. When you get inspired by that, you want to try to replicate it because you're trying to learn how exactly the other person saw it. And then you start to pick up on things like, oh, well, that distraction's there. It was this time of year, blah, blah, blah. And then you fine tune it. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people that that's as far as that they're going to gravitate to. Right. That they're excellent as far as reproducing something, but they just never understand the mechanics of how to see. Mm-hmm. What? And uh, I think it's a skill and I don't, it's very difficult to learn. <laughs> it, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've seen enough people's pictures on their uh, iPhones that come into the booth that shows and say, hey, I got a shot just like that. <laughs> you do one art show, you're going to have about 20 experiences like that just from one art show. <laughs> yeah. It's astonishing. So fortunately by me with the body of work that I shoot, uh, I pretty well don't run into that very often anymore mm-hmm. unless someone's looking through my print bin and they come across one of the oldies. Then, you know, they get to show me their picture of Antelope Canyon. Right. This is funny. Winding down, Tim. So who do you think would be um, cool to hear on the podcast? Uh, well, you've had so many great photographers on. Uh, one, uh, one guy that I'm sure has got a lot of uh, great backstories for you would be uh, another guy that I see from the show circuit, and that would be uh, Ken Smith, uh, based out of Colorado. Uh, Ken is uh, does a lot of Americana photography as well as landscape photography and a lot of train photography, uh, which obviously has its own little ins and outs and how to do those types of shoots that uh, I think your, your uh, uh, listeners might find quite interesting. Yeah, and when you say train, train, do you mean like model trains or like actual trains? Well, he actually has got a background in uh, building sets for model trains and uh, has been featured in Model Railroader because he's photographed that stuff after he's built (laughs) it. And uh, so he's been featured in Model Railroader. I think he did like some project that lasted a year in building all the pieces and paying all that little exquisite attention to detail. Uh, and then he also, because he's got this um, ridiculous mind about those types of details that uh, he likes to photograph the, the real things too. So he's always involved or often involved in uh, setups for shooting locomotives in different parts of Colorado and other places like that. So that'd be quite interesting. Awesome. Another guy you might want to uh, think about is uh, uh, David Mayhew. And uh, David's also a, uh, a Colorado-based photographer. And uh, he's a storm chaser. So storm chasers always have their fun stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, da- yeah, and David also does the uh, show circuit. And uh, he's uh, 
just published a book last year too awesome. on some of his work. So very cool. Yeah. Well, man, Tim, this has been really fun. And uh, if I'm ever in Phoenix, I would definitely love to see some of those NASA cameras that you talked about. <laughs> and I'll have to dig them out of a box. I hear. It <laughs> sounds really cool, though. Like all of the just the way you describe the, it sounds really fascinating. Yeah, if you're a camera geek, you know, uh, I can go over the modifications at length to you. And I've, I've got profiles of each of the cameras that I've got on my website as well. Cool. So if any, anybody out there wants to look into that kind of stuff. Awesome. Um, so what uh, what do you have coming up uh, that uh, you want to tell, tell listeners about that they might be interested in? Well, um, uh, for people that uh, follow my work, uh, I'll be off to China in a couple of weeks. I'll be uh, tenting in the Gobi Desert and photographing some sand dunes and hopefully get some moisture and some dramatic skies with that type of thing. Seeking the truth along the way. And uh, <laughs> and also I'm going to be going to the uh, Yellow Mountains and the, uh, the area that was the inspiration for Pandora's Floating Mountains from Avatar. So it should be lots oh, of uh, really Just... unique uh, landscapes that, uh, you know, are, are – perhaps maybe common to people that live in Asia, but definitely not common to people that are over here. So looking forward to that work. Yeah. And uh, uh, later on, uh, later on in the year, I'll be teaching my uh, building blocks of photography course again, uh, which concentrates basically on my approach to photography where it concentrates on capture and the, uh, the steps that are required that I take um, for visualizing the type of images I want to get, uh, all my details that I go through with composition and, and research, uh, my attention to light, uh, the creative deployment of aperture and shutter speed, and finally balancing all the light together in exposure. That's the uh, class I usually do once a year. It's, uh, it's a five-week course, and it's based in Phoenix. But I'm looking at perhaps... Now that I've got this sexy looking microphone in front of me, that I might have to do a uh, uh, an online version of that because I've always had people across the uh, states that uh, don't have the five weeks to afford to come to Arizona, but would like to participate on the uh, on the training. So that's coming up. Oh wow, it's a it's a five week course, huh? Yeah, well, basically it's uh wow, it's one day uh, a week, but then I give homework. Uh, that goes over mm. the stuff that I've just taught, and that gives uh, I love that that gives critiques, definitely one on one uh, feedback to all the participants on their images, and then I know that they're getting what I'm teaching uh, because they're all building blocks. Yeah. You have to have the foundation before you can go on to the next block. Yeah, and so absolutely, but it all concentrates on capture. So all the work that's done yeah. until the shutter's closed, I don't teach anything about post-production work. Yeah. I'll leave that cool. to the editor. Well, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, awesome, Tim. Well, thanks again for coming onto the podcast. And um, I really appreciate it. And I've, I've been really enjoying looking at your, your work on your website. And um, I think listeners should definitely take a look because you got some really cool shots. I really like those Ch Chernobyl shots. So keep keep. Keep producing those unique images. I like that. That's, that's what it's all about. It feeds my creative instinct. <laughs> Thanks very much, Matt. I appreciate it. Absolutely. 
Ah, well, thank you so much to Tim for coming on to the podcast. It was really great to sit down with him and chat about the art show circuit and just really learn from him as someone who's been in the business a long time. I really appreciate uh, his time with us. Um, if you enjoyed our conversation, definitely check out uh, our talk on Patreon, uh, which is all about his NASA camera collection. Um, it's like 15 minutes and is really fascinating. Uh, I think you'll like it. Um, I wanted to just kind of, I don't know, tell you guys a little bit more about what we're trying to do with Patreon. You've probably noticed over the last maybe 10 episodes, a little bit of shift in the intro and outro here of the podcast. Um, I am, uh, allowing people to, uh, uh, per, uh, I guess support the podcast at $50 a, m- a month and higher, Um, And one of the perks you get for supporting the show at that level is you can um, uh, promote your services or your products or whatever it is um, on the podcast. So um, hopefully uh, you guys understand why I'm doing that. Um, I think it's a great way for um, people to give back to the show, but also me give back to the community. I think it's a win-win-win. So um, speaking of which, uh, I wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about one of my absolute favorite uh, sponsors of the show that's david kingham and his website uh, nature photographers network or npn um i I love it i love his website it is one of the most amazing places on the internet right now if you're a landscape photographer nature photographer or just starting out in photography in general it is rich and full of resources full of amazing individuals that have been in the business a very long time they have an amazing critique forum that is um there's lots of thoughtfulness to that forum a lot of rules that make sense but also allow for a lot of um great feedback on images i feel like you can just learn a lot um by just going there and reading those critiques of other people's images it's really really helpful um it's kind of also like getting away from the social media grind that i think a lot of us are trying to get out of um and having a more meaningful, more connective way to interact with like-minded uh, photographers and nature photographers. So check it out. Head over to naturephotographers.network. Um, and uh, I highly recommend it. Lots of great stuff over there. Check it out. Um, next week, we sit down with the amazingly talented Instagram phenom and uh, all-around really great kid. I call him a kid because he's he is pretty young. <laughs> uh, Andrew Studer, I've been following his work uh, ever since he started, like about a decade ago. And I really like his stuff. Um, we talked about his recent trip to uh, to Bhutan um, and uh, his corporate client work and our thoughts on the influencer culture over on Instagram. I think you guys will really like it. Um, I wanted to take a minute to also thank our newest patron su- Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you, Dan Vang, for your dollar pledge. Really appreciate that. Uh, D. Craig Young for his $10 a month pledge. Thank you so much. Uh, Rick Alway for his $10 pledge. Uh, Ken Dono for his $20 pledge. And uh, Jeffrey Anderson for his $5 pledge. I also wanted to share a really thoughtful uh, in, uh, iTunes review that Jeffrey Anderson left for the podcast and also shared with me over on Instagram. I just I just love hearing from you guys, and it's so cool, so I want to share. 
So this is what he had to say. Uh, I wanted to wait until I was fully caught up on the podcast before writing a review. Amazingly, it only took me a few weeks to listen to every single one. As a one-year-in photographer on my journey in this newfound obsession, this has been exactly what I've wanted. I now have some amazing photographers to learn and look up to that are like-minded. I honestly cannot think of one episode where I wasn't able to take something away, and for that, I am truly grateful. That reminds me, before I have to go, I'm going to go on to Patreon so I can gladly give you my money and unlock new episodes. Thanks again, Matt. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. Um, I really appreciate the review, and uh, it's my pleasure to try to do as much as I can to uh, give back to the community that I love and adore. So thank you. Um, well, feel free to reach out to us on social media. Um, just look for F-Stop Collaborate and Listen or Matt Payne Photography and uh, send me a note. Thanks again. See you next week.